This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I was newly divorced and madly in love with an Englishman addicted to Marlboro Reds. Together we'd sit in outdoor cafes, intertwining our legs, and I'd steal the cigarette from his lips. I felt glamorous, surrounded by the dissipating swirls of smoke, and comforted by the potential of this exotic new persona. It took me a while to truly get the hang of it, but by the time I figured out how to inhale without coughing, my British boyfriend was gone. All that autumn, I languished around my apartment, still smoking, if only to take solace in the now familiar smell. But all I did in those few months alone was trade one addiction for another. The only person I ever hid my smoking habit from was my father. I was loath to disappoint him, and I knew he would disapprove of my new dependence. Whenever I visited him, I would buoy myself up with gum and candy, and over the course of a weekend stay, would slowly and agonizingly begin to withdraw. I wouldn't light up again until I was safely out of his purview, and my first puff was always a heady affair. It was as if my brain somehow came alive with each inhalation. My dad lives way up in the Catskills, and after one Father's Day Sunday several years ago, I decided to stay overnight as I had a business meeting on Monday midway between his house upstate and mine in Manhattan. This, of course, substantially increased my craving, and by the time I left, I was jittery, cranky, and impatient. I couldn't get my fix fast enough and ended up chain-smoking through the entire journey. While I waited in the lobby for my colleagues to join me, I decided there was just enough time to have one more cigarette. As I made my way outside, my agitated, fired-up brain played a trick on me. There were two sets of doors, glass doors, in the lobby, but only one set was opened. I thought the first set was opened facing out, but in reality, it was the second set of doors that were open facing in. Because I didn't realize that the first set was closed, I walked headfirst into the glass door, broke my nose, and ended up in the hospital with 12 stitches. Both my face and my ego were bruised for weeks, and if that wasn't sufficient, I felt sheepish and guilty about keeping the specifics of the accident a secret from my dad. I often think back to that day and wonder how my brain could make a mistake like that. Why do we see what we see? How do we see? Our lives center around the perception of what we see and process with our brains, and scientists have determined that our eyes receive and send over 10 million signals to our brains each second. 
but we can only consciously process about 40 of those signals per second. Our perceptions are actually made up of what we selectively choose to see. Harvard professor John Stilgo believes that people are so focused on a goal or zeroing in on what appears to be obvious that they miss what is right in front of them. Rather than not being able to see the forest for the trees, they are unable to see the trees for the forest. Stilgo attributes this to the constant blur of modern life. We are now surrounded by a world of activity that can't be seen. The patterns produced by the splash of a raindrop happen too fast for our eyes to catch. Is it possible we could direct our brains to see more? Thomas Lewis, author of A General Theory of Love, believes the scientist and the artist both speak to the turmoil that comes from having a brain. A person cannot direct his emotional life in the way he bids his motor system to reach for a cup. He cannot will himself to want the right thing or to love the right person or to be happy after a disappointment or even to be happy in happy times. I recently gave up smoking, and in the end, it was not nearly as gruesome as I thought it would be, though I still have a hard time jump-starting my brain in the morning. Last week, as I was trying to get over a cold, I decided to take a bath instead of a shower before heading off to work. As I luxuriated in the bubbly hot water, I wondered why I didn't bathe like this more often. It wasn't until my walk to work that I realized that I never actually washed myself. I just lay there happily, lazily relaxing. Later, I laughingly recanted this story to my father. He chuckled and blamed my ailment on all my hard living. I paused because I didn't understand what he meant. Hard living, he insisted. All your smoking and drinking. My jaw dropped and my eyes popped and I demanded to know how he knew. I recalled the efforts I went to in order to conceal it from him, and I was incredulous. And then he told me this. The human brain is a mysterious and wondrous thing, Debbie. Just because you don't see something in front of you doesn't mean that you don't actually know that it's there. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Daniel Pink. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. Dan is an entrepreneur, a speaker, and the author of three groundbreaking books. His latest, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need, is as entertaining as it is practical for anyone searching for career fulfillment. His previous books, A Whole New Mind, Why Right Brainers Will Rule the Future, and Free Agent Nation, The Future of Working for Yourself, have become a success manual for people seeking success and happiness in the 21st century. Dan La Dan's last real job was in the White House as Chief Speechwriter for Vice President Al Gore. He received a BA from Northwestern University and a JD from Yale Law School, but to his lasting joy, he has never practiced law. Welcome, Dan. Debbie, thanks for having me on the program. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. Well, I want to start by first talking with you about your former career as a speechwriter for Al Gore. What was that like? Well, I mean, it was those kinds of jobs are exhilarating and demanding. They're they're they sort of you denominate your life in dog years rather than 
human years. So what do you mean by each, that? Each month you survive is equivalent to like four months. So if you stay for a year, you've been working for four years. If you stay for two years, you've been working for eight years. Ah, um, so it's one of those kind of things. But it's exhilarating. And, um, you know, every once in a while I felt like I was making a difference in the world. Um, but eventually I, I just um, couldn't take it anymore. Well, how, how does one get a job writing speeches for a politician? Well, um, generally, the, these kinds of jobs go to people without any other form of skill. Um, so <laughs> really? Yeah. No. Well, I mean, basically, I mean, most people get into that racket in a in a. I, I haven't I haven't really encountered anybody who set out to become a speechwriter. I sure as heck didn't. Uh, I got there in a strange way. I worked on a number of uh, political camp. I mean, as you mentioned, I went to law school, never practiced law. Yes. Um, didn't, you know, did a really just horrible performance in law school. Pretty much wasn't allowed to practice law. Oh, really? Um, did you fail? <laughs> so, um, uh, so I worked in politics and worked on a lot of campaigns. And in the course of working in those campaigns, people discovered that I typed reasonably fast. And somebody assigned me a speech because there was no one else around to do it, and I did that and did reasonably well, and they assigned another. And lo and behold, um, I gradually morphed into uh, writing speeches. And then speeches in some ways are, speech writers in some ways are like, um, you know, baseball managers. So when a major league baseball team fires one of its managers, there's basically like only like six or seven people who are out there who can take the job. And they just basically rotate from place to place. And so, you know, at the time that this particular job came open, I happened to be on that, you know, rotation list. And so I took, uh, and, and so I took, I was writing speeches for a cabinet secretary. And, um, you know, I got the call, and the rest is um, not history, but the rest is uh, a moment in time. So you said you actually didn't set out to become a speech writer. No way. Um, what did you set out to become? Hmm. Interesting question. Uh, and you've certainly raised the bar with that introductory story about that's, that was so kind of, I mean, I was on the edge of my seat, um, both uh, in terms of the suspense of the tale, but also the kind of the metaphysical revelation that I was sure was going to occur at the very end. <laughs> so, I, so, you know, I don't know what I, so I can't really top that. But I don't, you know, I, I, I um, uh, you know, I went to law school because that's what you were supposed to do. Um, and I didn't have anything better to do. And I thought I would, I don't know, I, 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 you know, I was always interested in politics and, and um, I was always, uh, you know, did some amount of writing, but I actually never uh, really deeply thought that I, would make a, that I would make a career of being a writer. It was sort of later, you know, a bit later in my life when I just kind of excavated all of that surface stuff and said, wait a second, deep down in here um, might be someone who, whose purpose on this earth, whose reason for being is to, is to write stuff. Now, I... I know that there's a lot of um, questions that I have for you all here prepared. One that I didn't actually ask and uh, uh, write down, and I'm wondering why I didn't, um, is just, just this one question that isn't about you, and that is what was it like working for Al Gore? Uh, for Al Gore, in particular, Al Gore the person rather than the, the, the job in the office? Yes. Oh, Al, Al Gore's a good guy. Uh, I, like, I really like working for Al Gore. Uh, he's a very, very smart guy. He's a guy who I think wants to do a principled thing. Uh, he's a surprise. He's a he's a surprisingly nice guy. He is an incredibly funny guy, uh, and so he was uh, a delight to work for, as politicians go. Uh, he was also a politi- He's also one of the very few politicians uh, who around. I mean, I think Obama falls into this category too. Who himself was a writer. 
Yeah. Uh, Gore was a journalist before he chose politics, and he had written a couple of books. And so I'll give you one anecdote here. He, he, he said something. I mean, usually being a writer in politics is incredibly irritating and annoying. Uh, so, you know, I would uh, write a – regardless of who you were working for, you had to deal with other people who didn't really have any notion of what you did and what writing was. And so I would write a speech, say, and someone in the chain of command would read it and say, it needs a little more rhetoric. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what that means. I know, that's like all. when, when um, people tell it the needs writers, more make it poetry. Like, mm-hmm. they you know, they had no idea, you know, um, um, they, um, you know, other times where you're explaining a policy and they say, well, this is not very convincing. And, you know, and I say, well, it's because the policy is BS. I mean, you're not doing, you know, we're announcing something that isn't real. Um, and so, you know, you have all of these kinds of tangles, and they think that that um, that, that writers either have these, like, racks of, of spices, like rhetoric and poetry that they just sprinkle into their right. word processor, <laughs> or or they think that, that writing can somehow, that writing is, is, is a form of uh, linguistic prestidigitation uh, to, be multi, to be multi-syllabic on you, uh-huh. and, uh, and, and that you can essentially, you know, perfume a dying body with words. And, and Al Gore doesn't, I mean, you know, he's one of the politicians as a writer who didn't, who didn't feel that way. And so, you know, one example was, you know, he would, we, we would, I would do a speech and, and then, you know, he would, he would look it over and sometimes we'd meet and he would have comments about it and I would do a rewrite. Um, and, um, you know, one time I, I gave a speech, you know, he gave me some orders, some sort of direction for a speech and I wrote it. And, and, um, and he looked it over and, and he said, oh, you know what, I asked you to say, uh, I don't remember what it was. He said, I, you know, uh, I asked you to say such and such. And he said, and then he said, and I thought I was going to get, you know, a tongue lash. And he said, well, I know, like sometimes you're writing, and in the course of writing something, um, you realize that a piece doesn't fit in, and you, um, and you get rid of it. And he's like, oh, my God. Like no politician has ever said that. Wow. Um, you know, and I was like, oh, my gosh, you actually understand what I do there. And so, you know, so as politicians go, uh, he's, you know, top of the line. Well, let's talk a little bit about your second book, A Whole New Mind, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future. The book was published in 2005. Given your relationship with Al Gore and how much design figures uh, in your book, did the design debacle of the 2000 election inspire you to write the book in any way? Oh, no, no, no. It was, um, no, I don't think it inspired me to write it. I mean, this is a book about... You know some some big trends I saw in how in, in what people did on the job and, and how the set of abilities that I you know middle class kid from the Midwest was uh, instructed to develop uh, my belief based on what was going on in the real economy that those sorts of abilities weren't enough and that a new sort of new set of abilities was the one that mattered it, that happened to be the butterfly ballot and the effect that it had on the election ended up being a kind of um, uh, real I, I thought somewhat persuasive. Um, point in demonstrating why design has practical implications. Yes. Um, now I get more. Um, I, I don't get a large volume of hate mail, but I get um, more hate mail on that than on anything else. I've had really? people who. Oh yeah, I've had people who got into that section of the book, which is like a page. I mean, right. like a few paragraphs, um, where I say just for your, so your listeners understand what I'm talking about. Um, if you actually look at the numbers in in the election in 2000, um, both sides are are in in, in some ways wrong. Uh, Republicans say that that 
Gore was trying to steal the election. And I wasn't working for him. I stopped working for him several years before that. So I have mm-hmm. no, I had no dog in this fight. Uh, so Republicans say Gore was trying to steal the election. Democrats still say to this day that the Supreme Court stole the election. Mm-hmm. And um, both are wrong. Um, yeah, there was a study done afterwards uh, in, in 2001 that got completely lost in all the hubbub over 9-11 uh, that, that said that um, uh, what did really determine the election was this butterfly ballot, where you had huge numbers of older older voters in Palm Beach who uh, mistakenly voted for Pat Buchanan in numbers that are just inexplicable. I mean, right. he got more votes in that county from you know heavily Democratic county than anywhere else in the, in the state. Yeah, and but those according to your book, three thousand four hundred and seven votes, three times as many votes as he did in any other county in the state. Right, and any and and again, that's three times. There there are many counties that are much much bigger. You know, so just as a proportion, you know, if you get a small portion of a large number, you're going to get a reasonably large number. And so he got three times as many votes there as anywhere else in the state, including something like Dade County, which is, you know, Miami. And so, you know, it was clear that some of these older voters were making a mistake. And the reason they were making the mistake was because the ballot was so poorly designed. So, you know, my, I mean, again, Debbie, as you know, this is like a, you know, I mean, this is not central to the book at all. It's, it's, it's. Literal. I mean, I should look at it right now. It's it's probably page eighty four. <laughs> three paragraphs. What yep. page is it on? So you got a lot of hate mail about it. Oh my God! I I got I got you know Pat. It's like I got three times as much hate mail on that as I did on anything I've ever written. Wow. Um, you know, even though it's not to my mind that controversial of a point, and it occupies roughly four paragraphs in a two hundred and. 72-page book. But anyway, uh, yes. it did not inspire me to write it. I thought it was interesting because, again, to turn it to the topic that, I, that, you know, that your listeners are work on every day is that there's a notion out there, especially among non, non-designers, and I myself, as you know, I'm not a designer. There's a notion out there that design is uh, ornamentation, that design is prettifying something. And I was trying to make the case in the book through that example and others that uh, design is more than that. Um, design is problem solving, number one, and, and also that design has consequences um, beyond something not being pretty. Yeah, Michael Beirut did a wonderful poster, which is in my office, that has a picture of the butterfly ballot, and then uh, on top of the butterfly ballot, the line, design counts. <laughs> so, Perfect, right. I love that. Right. Well, you write about James Watson, and you state that he described the human brain as the most complex thing mm-hmm. we have yet discovered in our universe. Right. And I wonder what made you decide to write about the brain in the first place. Well, I wrote about the brain because uh, I thought it was a good metaphor. And this book, A Whole New Mind, as you know, is not explicitly about the brain. What it does is it uses the two sides of our brain as a metaphor for understanding the contours of our time. Yes. Um, and so, you know, and so, but in order to get the underlying metaphor right, I actually do spend the first chapter uh, talking about our brain, and I go to the National Institutes of Health outside my home here in Washington, D.C., to get my brain scanned and to, and to really understand in a firsthand way the differences between the left side of our brain and the right side of our brain, between our left hemisphere and our right hemisphere, which differences that have been uh, overstated and um, in some ways uh, popularized in an unscientific way, but the differences that, that remain true facts, as I call them. Yes. Well, the subtitle to the book is Why Right Brainers Will Rule the Future. 
And in the book, you describe that the, less, the left hemisphere controls the right side of the body, mm-hmm. and the right hemisphere controls the left side of the body. Mm-hmm. And so what do you consider a right-brainer, and why do you think that right-brainers will rule the future? Well, let's take, let's take a step back for people who aren't up to speed on their neuroscience. And <laughs> <laughs> say, okay. okay you know, give you the 30 seconds on what the difference is between the two sides of our brain. Um, first of all, our brains are really complicated. We, we, at some level, I think, especially if we, when we look back 20 years from now, we'll realize that right now, uh, 2009, we have a relatively primitive understanding of our brains. Mm-hmm. But we also know that um, our, as complicated and complex as the brains are, they're also pretty efficient. And so over time, they've divided up tasks. So the left hemisphere specializes in one set of tasks, tasks that are logical, linear, sequential, analytical. Okay? Mm-hmm. The right side specializes in a different set of tasks. Now, there, these aren't tasks that are harder or easier or more important or less important. It's just, it's just a different department. Um, it does different things. So it specializes in processing things all at once rather than in sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, pro- it deals with context rather than text, um, which is in some ways uh, relevant to your story because your father, even though the text of your actions and your words were trying to convey one thing, he took a step back, looked at the context of everything else, and saw the truth. Right. Um, and then um, uh, right hemisphere deals with synthesis rather than analysis. And I think that that metaphor is very powerful um, because today the sorts of, of, of functions, the sorts, uh, really sorts of functions to some extent the professions themselves, built on these left brain abilities, the logical, the metaphorically left brain abilities, the logical, linear, sequential, analytical, step-by-step, rule-based, zero-in-on-the-right-answer ability, those sorts of those sorts of abilities um, are less valuable um, because they're easy to outsource and easy to, easy to automate. Whereas the right brain abilities, abilities that we that especially here in the U.S. we haven't taken seriously enough, uh, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking, those abilities because they're hard to outsource and hard to automate, uh, actually become more valuable. Now, you say that um, in the U.S. particularly, we don't take uh, the right brain, um, uh, the right brain behavior seriously. And, and you also write in the book that uh, Nobel Prize winning scientist Roger Sperry believed that modern society uh, discriminates against the right hemisphere. So why, why are the attributes not taken seriously? And why do, do you agree with Roger Sperry in saying that the modern society discriminates against the right hemisphere? Oh, that's interesting. Well, Roger Sperry, that's, Roger Sperry said that a few years ago, and Roger Sperry is, is, is the scientist who really helped us understand initially the differences between these two hemispheres, the functional differences between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. Um, I, I think why, why does society dis- discriminate? I think it's, like it's, uh, it's complex, but I can think of two reasons. Um, number one is that uh, for a long time, especially in this country, but, but throughout the advanced economies, uh, the left-brain abilities were more economically useful. Um, the, the accountant abilities, the engineer abilities, the, the, the lawyer abilities, uh, those were the abilities that employers wanted. So therefore... Those were the abilities that individuals were uh, incentivized to develop. And those are the abilities, again, if you go back another step, those are the abilities that schools taught. 
Um, this is so you know this is why someone like me went to law school. It's basically saying this is there's a sort of a a set of rules that you're supposed to follow, and the rules are essentially developing these left brain abilities. Because if you and, and, it's, and, and that was that was valid, because if you if you develop those left brain abilities, if you if you have the skills of a uh, the rudimentary skills of an accountant or a lawyer or an engineer, you are going to be fine. And so, in a very rational, sensible way, uh, our our world was configured around developing those sorts of of, of capacities, um, and the other ones were seen as fine but not central. They were seen as ornamental in some sense rather than fundamental. And when push came to shove, if you were a serious person, you focused on the left rather than the right. The other thing, which I think is, a, is, is equally intriguing and, and probably related in some way to that first point, is that uh, left brain abilities are, very, are relatively easy to measure. IQ tests, SATs. Right. Um, uh, I, you know, and again, I want to emphasize that I, I still think the left brain abilities matter. I just think they're necessary and not sufficient. Right. But those sorts of abilities are, are easy to matter, are, are easy to measure. And, and in any kind of organization, and all your listeners understand this, you understand this, anybody who's been in any kind of organization, uh, whether it's a school or, or a company, understands that you know, measurements really matter. And what happens sometimes, and I think it happened here, is that uh, we sort of fell into a logical fallacy that said uh, the fact that we can measure it means it's worth measuring. Right. Um, and, and the fact that the other stuff can't be measured means it's not worth measuring. And I think that got us uh, a little bit into this uh, systematic bias against artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking as uh, serious, uh, robust, uh, important cognitive abilities. Yeah, well, I also think that, that many of those um, attributes are actually very subjective. You know, something that one person might think is subject is uh, sure. artistic, somebody else might actually not, whereas one plus one equals two, period. Right, and one, right exactly. And, and now there are, you know, there actually are some ways to measure some of these capacities. For instance, there are psychological instruments. And when I want to say instrument, I mean uh, like pencil and paper, like a, Test, you know, right. human and not a French horn, um, <laughs> to, to measure those sorts of uh, you know things like empathy, and they're reasonably valid. Um, but you know, again, there is a certain level of of some of subjectivity. They are um, um, they, they are they are unquestionably murkier. Uh, to my mind, I don't think they defy measurement of any kind, but they defy measurement in the kind of binary sense of right and wrong. Is it? Do you think it's possible to measure something like empathy? Sure. I mean, I think it's. I, I think can you measure it perfectly? No. But I mean, there are there are all kinds of psychologists and behavioral scientists out there who've developed these instruments to measure empathy. So you have something like uh, right about in a whole new mind called the Jefferson Scale of Physician Empathy, which is a pencil and paper test developed by the Jefferson Medical School in Philadelphia to measure young physicians' empathy and. What's significant about that is that it turned out that measurements of empathy correlated with patient outcomes in a way that these left-brain measurements, whether MCAT scores or medical board scores or GPA, did not. That, and, and, and that actually actually had a big catalyzing effect on medical education because what, what they were able to show is that, wow, we can measure empathy, and empathy produces really good results. Wow, maybe we should try to get these folks better at empathy and spread these good results even more widely. Dan, we have a caller. Um, we have Allison from New Jersey. Allison, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, how are you, Debbie? I'm good, thank you. Hi, Dan. Hi. 
Um, I have a question. Um, for people like myself who consider themselves less brain-oriented, yeah. um, are there any type of right brain exercises or workouts that you would suggest to sort of get that in motion for us? Sure. Um, um, you, you should... Uh, it, it, Hmm, I should I should have this up on my website, but there are uh, the the book uh, a whole new mind, and I'm not trying to flack the book because I'm going to give you something. I'm going to offer something for free here in a second. Although it is a really good book, <laughs> um, I have to the, say, um, I learned a lot. The, uh, when I talk about the abilities that matter most, the book has uh, at the end of each of those chapters all kinds of tools and tips and exercises and things to get better at these sorts of abilities, whether it's design or empathy or um, uh, 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 what I call symphony, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, a reader has put together uh, links to all of those, um, uh, all of the sites and resources that I mentioned in there and put them up. And I can give you that URL if you just hang on for a second. So the, the short answer to the question is, uh, yes, absolutely, you can, get, um, you can get better at that. You can get better at these things. It depends on which of these particular abilities you're most interested in developing. So if you think about design, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I, I myself, like you, Allison, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very hardcore left-brain guy. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, I really am. I mean, I, you know, I, I have to check my instincts on, on a lot of this stuff because I'm just, you know, sequential, quantitative, logical. Um, and so I'm trying to get better at this sort of stuff myself. So let's take design as one example. Okay. Uh, design... Uh, I've gotten, again, more literate in design simply by keeping a design notebook, um, by carrying around with me a notebook. And each time I, in, I see something that is a, an instance of good design, and each time I see an instance of bad design, um, I write it down. Um, you're sort of using your right brain to exercise your left brain. <laughs> right. I love how you're using your left brain to make your right brain work harder. <laughs> Yeah, no, well, but you got to go with you know you go with what it's like you know you go with what brought you there. So um, and so, but I but I mean designers do that too. I mean designers often carry around a notebook, oh, yeah. and, you know, write down sources of inspiration. But for me, it it actually what it did is it brought to the surface a very powerful idea, an idea that 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 I never even considered before, which is that essentially everything in our midst is the product of a design decision. Things in our in our midst, whether they're, they're the, the 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 physical stuff, or even configurations of a workplace, or the configuration of, of a city, this stuff didn't just like fall from the sky. Uh, it had an intention behind it. it. Some human being created it. Some human being said, "Hey, I want it to look this way. I want it to be this way." And sometimes those intentions, those design uh, impulses, are beautiful and transcendent. And other times they're thoughtless and stink. And I think simply knowing that is is me personally is profound. Am I ever going to be a great designer? No way. But have I become ever more design literate thanks to a 99 cent drugstore notebook? Yeah, I actually think that I have. Uh, I've become much more conscious of, of that sort of thing. So that's one example of of um, of, uh, of these uh, of that. I also um, ended up taking a drawing course, a drawing course called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, having never taken any fine arts class in high school, college, or as an adult. And that drawing course, I mean, certainly improved my drawing ability, but what it really did is that it changed the way that I see. Right. And you so, write about that. It's and, so, um, and so, Allison, so I think there are all kinds of things. It just really depends on what you're, which of the abilities you're interested in doing. And 
you know, I tried to configure a lot of these exercises and tips and things to be, you know, pretty cheap and pretty doable and pretty actionable. It's not simply saying, you know, putting people on an eight-week boot camp regimen of right brain, you know, aerobics or something like that. It's just, you know, small stuff you can do every single day. I realize, though, Debbie, we can do this by the end of the show, that this URL which has all the links uh, is a very long URL. So I want to... Um, what well, if you URL send it to me, Dan, I can, I can post it up on my website and everybody can get it. Okay, uh, let's do that. So we'll post it on your website. Or yours if you want, danpink.com. Um, yeah, we'll post it on yours because I think your listeners will go to your website. Okay. Well, I want them to see yours too. So we can do it on both. Oh, what a, what a great compliment. <laughs> that's empathy in action right there. <laughs> um, Allison from New Jersey, thank you for calling Design Matters. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to take a little break right now. I'd like to let everybody know that live from the Empire State Building in New York City, you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is author Dan Pink. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Thank you. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Hi, this is Eric Ryan, co-founder of Google Soap Company Method. Here today is talking about Fuse, the annual event for design and culture, brand identity, and packaging. Fuse is taking place April 22nd to 24th at the Hotel Nico in my beautiful hometown of San Francisco. Fuse has been the top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for more than 10 years. This year, I'll be talking about the Method brand on Thursday, April 23rd, along with some other brilliant thinkers from McDonald's, Victoria's Secrets, and more. Also joining us is the always amazing Dan Pink, author of A Whole New Mind. And every April, hundreds of design legends and corporate superstars converge at Fuse to join the brand design community and redefine the next generation of brand strategy and design. It's time to move beyond the fear and the uncertainty and start a conversation that celebrates possibility, opportunity, and change. Fuse promises to deliver the information, inspiration, and camaraderie that you need to stay on top, focused, strong, and renewed. So register today at www.iirusa.com forward slash Fuse and receive a 25% discount courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. Hope to see you there. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.35 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is author and entrepreneur Dan Pink. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Dan, our phone lines are open. Please call 1-866-472-5790. And, Dan, we do have another caller on the line. We have Lauren from Chicago. Lauren, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie and Dan. How are you? Hi, Lauren. Um, my question is, well, I'm also coming from a very left brain point of view, and it's hard for me to think of in abstract as much as it is with concrete examples. So I was wondering if there's a, a company that you think is doing well transitioning to the sort of conceptual right brain way of thinking, and if that's if, if the way if the current economy is affecting sort of these directions in general. Uh, sure, great. It's a great question. I'll give you two part questions. So let me take the first part first, which is a, a great example of that would be uh, Procter and Gamble. Uh, Procter and Gamble is a company that I mean, let's 
you know, it's a great company. I think it's an excellent company. Um, but it makes what are essentially uh, commodity products. It, it makes uh, diapers and toothpaste and shampoo. Um, and being in a commodity product business is very, very difficult um, in a world of such incredible abundance where people have, you know, 87 choices of, shamp- of, of, of strawberry shampoo and people have you know, 49 choices of um, tartar control toothpaste, et cetera. <laughs> and, um, and so what, what uh, P&G has done is it has brought uh, designed thinking into, inside the firm. Um, so it is training all of its, not all of its people, but a, a significant portion of its people in design thinking. Not necessarily being a designer, but thinking like a designer. That is, combining uh, useful solutions with things that are meaningful and transcendent. Uh, and this has helped uh, Procter & Gamble launch all kinds of new offerings. Uh, it has helped Procter & Gamble basically survive this, um, this downturn. Uh, and it's made Procter & Gamble, to my mind, one of the most uh, innovative companies in a, in, a, in a field that isn't really all that innovative. I mean, we tend to think of innovation occurring in you know, technology and whatnot, but this is, you know, this is a company that makes Pringles. And, and they've been able to do some really remarkable work and post really good financial results. So I think they're, they're a great example of this. More broadly, <clears throat> I think one of the most interesting trends out there is you see companies, um, um, a whole range of companies, whether not only entertainment companies, gaming companies, um, consumer products companies, uh, consulting companies, um, uh, recruiting at art and design colleges, places that maybe 10 years ago they didn't know existed. So... Uh, the year before last, Electronic Arts, the, the gaming company, um, goes to the Ringling College of Art and Design, the Ringling School of Art and Design in uh, Sarasota, Florida, and comes in and hires 25 of its graduates. Um, and they have a graduating class, I think, of about 150. Wow. So they, you know, they went in there and plucked uh, one out of six graduates of the school because they had, uh, they had these sorts of abilities. Uh, arguably, Apple is able to compete um, in its sphere on the right brain attributes of, of design, you know, focusing on design, um, and uh, pull back from commodity hell uh, because of that. So there are, you know, a, really a large number of, of companies and organizations that are beginning to, that have already begun to uh, embrace these things and put them in place. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for calling. Bye. One of the things that oh, I'm she had a she had a second question. I uh, second part of Lauren's question. I just realized there, Debbie, is that is, it was sort of about the effect of this downturn. Oh um, yes. And so let's let me address that uh, in thirty seconds. Sure. Um, uh, the up, um, I actually think that the downturn accelerates a lot of these trends. So if you think about offshoring, if we're offshoring routine rule-based white-collar work. Um, and, you know, whether it's like a, certain kinds of accounting or programming or whatever, um, that's, to my mind, likely to get even faster in a downturn as companies look to save money. Uh, I think that the uh, same thing is true with automation. That is, automate the automation of white-collar work, whether it's TurboTax for accounting or certain kinds of legal websites for, for law practice, mm-hmm. um, that's a way that individuals and companies save money. And when people are looking to save money, that accelerates as well. What's more is that the other thing that you often see in these patterns is that um, uh, the the biggest innovations, the biggest breakthroughs occur often, not always, but often, uh, in periods like this, when people are basically saying, oh, my gosh, the forest just burned down. We have to think in fundamentally new ways. And so a lot of the big, bold, conceptual breakthroughs 
that occur in the economy um, take place um, during times like these. I mean, a great example uh, would be uh, the iPod, which, which obviously, you know, overused example in so many different ways, but a total freaking game changer in, in different industries, in several industries. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, you know, it was introduced uh, six weeks to the day after 9-11, when, um, the comp- that when the country was jittery, when stock market was down, unemployment was up. And so uh, it's usually, you know, oftentimes like these that give rise to the really big breakthrough innovations. Well, interestingly, though, I one of the things that I was absolutely startled about when I was reading Whole New Mind was the fact that though light bulbs are cheap and electricity is ubiquitous, candles are a $2.4 billion business in the U.S. And so I think it goes both ways. I mean, yes, there are these incredible times of, of um, innovation possible, but yet we still have this really deep-seated search for meaning, oh, yeah. spiritual enlightenment. Sure. And, um, well, that's a, I mean, that's huge. I mean, that, you know, what you have is you have a country that has gotten over the last 50 years in general, in the aggregate, uh, much wealthier, but not that much happier. Right. And so you have all kinds of people, particularly, you know, especially led by the baby boomers who are, trying to lift their levels of satisfaction, pursue meaning and purpose. And you see all these things that used to be these weird, fringy things moving to the mainstream. So, um, you know, when I, you know, um, when I, when I was a kid, um, uh, I think I, mean, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, um, and so, you know, we used to walk around the Ohio State University campus. You walk around the Ohio State University campus in 1971, you could see somebody doing yoga, Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, you know, and, and my mother said, "Don't go near that person," um, <laughs> you know. And now you got 15 million Americans, including my own wife, doing yoga. Oh yeah, people taking yoga breaks during the day. In their yeah, offices. you've got 10 million Americans uh, meditating every day. So all these, you know, fringy, meaning-based things have really migrated to the mainstream, in part for exactly the reasons you're saying, Debbie, which is this broader search for for, for meaning and purpose. There was another statistic in your book that, that also startled me. You have some really, really good statistics in this book. Um, but you wrote that self-storage facilities have become a $17 billion business. And this is what really freaked me out. Bigger than the motion picture sure. business and that the U.S. spends more on trash bags than 90 other countries spend on everything. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. This, is what, this is what we call abundance, which is another thing that's tilting the scales in favor of right-brain abilities. We've been saturated with so much stuff, and there, and there are all kinds of numbers to indicate this. So I think when I, was, when I was born in the early 1960s, you had essentially 1% or 2% of American homes had a color television. Mm-hmm. Now you've got 98% of homes have a color television. What, um, yeah, uh, how many? Uh, if you think about a kid who's a high school senior today, when that kid was born, um, you had roughly 1% or 2% mobile phone penetration in this country. Now you're up at 88%, uh, you know, in the space of that kid's lifetime. Um, and that mobile phone, the other thing is, uh, you know, let's compare generations. You think about that kid in high school, that kid has, that, that mobile phone has more computing power than existed in the world when that kid's grandparent was that age. Right. And so, I mean, so this level of abundance is kind of, you know, staggering, and it's evidenced by the self-storage industry, which, if I can edit that a bit, because that figure is now a couple of years old, it's now right. a $22 billion a year business. Yeah, that's remarkable. A business devoted to housing people's extra stuff. Right. This is, why, this is why I have to say, I mean, this downturn is bad. 
And the economy, what's happened to the economy is, is, is really as bad as it's been since I have been a worker, taxpayer, homeowner, grown-up, etc. Um, probably, you know, I think it's the worst it's been since the early 1980s. Uh, however, in my view, and I, and I, and, and I hope I'm right about this, uh, I, I think I'm right, but I also hope that I'm right, this ain't the Great Depression. Okay? There was not a $22 billion a year self-storage industry in the Great Depression. <laughs> Good point. Danny, you there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought I lost you for a second. So what do you think is going to get us out of this? I know you're not an economist, but just as somebody that thinks about culture every day the way that you do, what do you think? Do you think we're, do you think we're nearing that turn? I, I saw it today. On in the, the economy? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, here's the thing. Economies go up and economies go down. This one happens to go way, this one happens to be going way down. Um, and it's very, very painful. And I don't want to make, I don't want to make light of that. And I think in some ways it's unprecedented. Um, I mean, my own view, again, my own non-economist view is that what, what's happened here essentially is sort of two recessions. One, the recession that began over a year ago, and that was like, you know, a, a mild recession. Then we got hit, this banking crisis basically represented a second depression. So we had basically a second recession. So we had, you know, back-to-back recessions, which is in some ways uh, unprecedented. And it's really, really bad. But here's the thing. The long-term trend is toward greater and greater prosperity. Um uh, especially in this country. It doesn't happen in one fell swoop. Uh, it's not often pretty, but over, over time, things get a little bit better. And I don't see any evidence that that has been repealed. Uh, what I do see evidence of is that people are getting past this ridiculous excess that occurred. Uh, you see the savings rate going up in a rather dramatic way. Uh, and you also see entrepreneurs who are looking at the landscape and saying, wow, Big guys have been flattened. The big guys are running scared. Uh, labor is relatively cheap. Technology is almost preposterously powerful. Um, it's very easy for a, a couple of people with a great idea and a lot of persistence to cobble together something that actually can make a big difference in the world. Um, and so, uh, so I'm, you know, I remain cautiously. Uh, I'm my general stance is cautious optimism, not because. Just because I'm a I'm an empiricist. I mean, that's basically been the best bet to make over the last hundred years. Cautious optimism, woolly-eyed optimism is ridiculous. Hand wringing, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, is ridiculous too. I mean, both of those tend to be wrong. But if you say, "Hey, I think it's going to get a little bit better," you don't get any press, but you end up being right. Mm. Well, in in your book, you included one of the best definitions of design that I've I've read, and it's written by John Heskett. And I'm, I'm thinking that going back to your iPod example being launched shortly after 9-11 and the opportunity that we have now, I think certainly designers have uh, one of the best shots at it. Um, this is the definition that you include in the book. He believes that design, stripped to its essence, can be defined as the human nature to shape and make our environment in ways without precedent in nature to serve our needs and give meaning to our lives. So I... I yeah, I, that's good. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, now, I should quote that. <laughs> that's what you did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, right. Uh, um, um, yeah. No, I think that's. I think that's right. Because it, it does combine. You know, I think what, both aspects of design. Design is not engineering. It is not simply getting a bridge to stand up. But it's also not necessarily. It's not fine art. It's not a painting that serves no functional purpose. Um, it's somewhere in between, and I think it's a it's a hybrid. But in some ways. 
is controversial, but in some ways more than either one of those. Well, speaking of hybrids, your third book uh, is a book that really is uh, a book that has changed the game. It's a book that <laughs> Well, is, I'm not sure about that, but it's, it's well, changed it's, it's, something. It's, it's an extraordinarily um, paradigm-shifting book, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need. It's the first American business book in manga. <laughs> it's a 160-page graphic novel career guide right. that outlines the six principles of satisfying productive careers through the story of a bumbling everyman named Johnny Bunko. Tell us a little bit more about why you decided to do this book in this really unique and powerful way. Well, you know, manga is, is, is basically just Japanese comics, and I did it for a couple of reasons. First, um, in 2007, I spent a few months in Japan studying the industry. And why did, you, why did things, you go there? Why did you even want to do that? Because I thought it was cool. I thought it was interesting. And I saw manga being very popular here in the United States, and I was wondering what the heck was going on. Uh, and I'd always been a fan of sort of the visual display of information and graphic storytelling. Um, but Japan does it to a degree that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. I well, mean, You felt that it's really a mass medium there. Oh, heck yeah. It's, 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 that's television. exactly it. It's, it. Here, comics in comics in the United States are not a mass medium. Um, uh, in, in, in Japan, they are. I mean, I mean, you have, here's my startling factoid on that, you have 22% of all printed matter in Japan is in manga. Wow. Um, you have, you know, you can, you, in Tokyo, for instance, it's hard to go more than a block without seeing comics somewhere. Yes. Um, and, you know, in New York or certain, certainly in Washington, D.C., I mean, I, can, I will not see in my environment, I will not see comics uh, in the course of my day-to-day -day activities today. I can guarantee that. Whereas no. in Tokyo, that would be, like, essentially impossible. Now, given that your your target market wasn't just Tokyo, how did your publisher feel about this? Was this something that they thought, "Woohoo, this is going to really"? Well, I mean, it? I made a I made a rational left brain argument here. Basically, what I said is that Japan has shown that you can use this form for a whole variety of topics. That comics needn't be simply stories about superheroes or teen romance. In Japan, you can get manga on cooking, on sex, on romance, on history, on politics, on anything. It's, it is a, it's exactly as you say, a mass medium. Um, meanwhile, manga was becoming popular here in the U.S., but it was still very much uh, uh, restricted to those sorts of stories. So I said, well, what, you know, there's proof of concept out there that manga can be used for other sorts of things. Why not try it for uh, a business book? And then I said, the reason I did it for a career book was that um, I realized that there is a rather significant change going on here and that today most people are getting their career information online for free rather than going to a book. Mm -hmm. So in that kind of environment, um, you know, and I think that makes sense because Google can do things that, that books cannot. And so I think that writers have to say, okay, what can a book do that Google cannot? And I think that what it can do is it can give people a great experience, a rich experience, a, a physical artifact, uh, and can tell and can provide strategic information uh, in a fun, fast, um, uh, interesting way. And so that's what we decided to do with the story of uh, Johnny Bunko, who starts out working at a place called the Boggs Corporation, mm -hmm. uh, hates his job, has a dark night of the soul, um, goes out to get some Japanese food, brings it back, cracks open his, his paper-sleeved chopsticks, and an explosion occurs, and that, those chopsticks release Diana, who is essentially the kick-butt career advisor. Or, as we say on the jacket of the book, 
uh, part Cameron Diaz, part Barbara Eden, <laughs> which was a colossal mistake because nobody in my target demographic, I realized, knows who Barbara Eden is. I was just going to ask you about that. That was a, an unusual choice. I just send people to Wikipedia to find out who Barbara Eden is. Uh, any any chance that Johnny Bunko is going to see the moving screen or well, I'm curious you mentioned that we've actually had an offer for the uh, for the movie rights and um, uh, possibly to my regret I turned it down because um, uh, I don't think we're quite ready to to do that yet and sort of you know possibly in the works are are more adventures of Johnny um, oh good because so, um, uh, I have a lot of readers who. Saw Johnny go through his time at the box, go through this, you know, basically this month-long period at the Boggs Corporation, learn the six key lessons of any satisfying career, and then people are emailing saying, okay, what's going to happen next? What's he going to do? What's right. You know? And so um, I think that there will probably be some further adventures of uh, uh, Johnny Bunko. But first I have to finish. I'm working on another book right now, uh, an old-fashioned book that has things like sentences and paragraphs. Uh, so yeah. I got to get that done first. And, and this is a book that is about uh, science and the economics of human motivation, I believe. Exactly, it's about it's about motivation and why we often get it flatly wrong, and how we can get it better to and and, and in doing so uh, uh, run our businesses and our lives uh, in, a, in a more effective and more humane way. Now we're coming to the close of the show, Dan. But so I have to ask you this. Did you ever think that you would see in the New York Times bestseller list a listing for graphic novels? Uh, no, I didn't see that. And now what I want to see is Johnny Bunko on that list. <laughs> I mean, yes, we've well. made now we've made publishing history of a sort by having by uh, being the first um, uh, comic graphic novel on the Business Week bestseller list. Um, a, 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 a distinction that I think three people know of and two people care about. Um, but I, I think it's awesome. Uh, what's interesting is, is, is the composition of that list. Um, yes. And it shows you how popular some of these manga titles, these super, the, uh, the, the title, for instance, Naruto, uh, is, is so popular among younger people. And I think there's a kind of manga mania going on beneath the radar that a lot of, pe- that a lot of people over 18 have no idea about. What is the title of your next book? It's called Drive. Drive. Well, we look for more adventures of Johnny Bunko and drive and thank you so much for coming on the show today dan it's really been a pleasure talking hey to it's you. been a pleasure to me and an, an incredibly swift hour thanks to your yes. interviewing skills oh thank you thank you um i hope you'll come back on the show sometime soon i will whether your listeners want it or not <laughs> thank you i'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at sterling brands especially lisa grant and my chief researcher jen simon Joining me on May 1st is the founder of Core 77, Alan Chachanov. Thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking to you in two weeks. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Miller. Oh, well, thank Be you. sure to listen You're every Friday at 12 Pacific You're Standard amazing. Time for so another exciting hour of Design and Matters it, right here on the bottom line of Business Talk, Voice again. America Business. 
Thanks again for listening oh, to the preceding program. I had it, I had brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. So. For more information about okay, our network so and to check out additional I'll let you know shows when the and topics of interest, okay, please visit thanks. VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. Okay, thanks. The Voice Bye. America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.